Amen. Thank you, Eli. What time did y'all get home last night or this morning? Three o'clock. Amen. I'm glad I'm a senior pastor. How many went last night and is, that are here this morning? Raise your hand. How many that went last night that's here this morning that were at Sunday school this morning? All right. Everybody see that? That used an excuse they couldn't get up this morning? And they worshiped last night and are here today. And uh, who drove the bus for them to go all the way up there and drove it all the way home at 3 o'clock in the morning? John and Andrew, I'm thankful for leaders like that, that are committed to our students to have them in a positive environment, a place that they're worshiping the Lord. And uh, I'm just, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for Matt and our whole praise team this morning. I told them I, I'm digging the bluegrass vibe this morning. I like all kinds of uh, Christian music and uh, all kinds of music, period, but it's such a joy to sing those old songs, but with a different flair. You know, it, it's not about the style, it's about the Savior. And as long as we praise Him, worship Him, lift Him up, that's what it's all about. I'm telling you now, a lot of people said, man, last week was great, I don't know how you're going to top it. I don't either, except by the Spirit. But I do know one thing, I've been waiting to start this for a year. So buckle up as we open to the book of Nehemiah. I began to pray over a year ago and felt God's leading to the book of, of Nehemiah. shared last year at the start of the year. Philip and I, we get together and we talk about our, our words. We still owe each other that meeting this year, Philip. But last year we sat down at the start of the year and we talked about each other's word. Uh, and his was gospel, mine was abide. And I, I just shared with him a little I said, you know, we're, we're going through books of the Bible, being very intentional about being exegetical, looking at the, the, not just jumping around with topics and narratives, but really breaking down what these books are about. And so uh, we, we went through, oh, I said, I'd like to go New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, back and forth. And I said, you know, we're finishing up this and I really want to start Nehemiah after Mark. And so Mark got to the close, got toward the end, got around chapter 13, 14, and started to try to prepare. And God says, yes, not yet. And so we began Acts. And I said, oh, we'll just kind of skim through it. And uh, seven months later, uh, we finished it up. And God says, yes, but not yet. And then I began to pray about now and headed into 2020. And God said, yes, period. And so I believe God has a word for us, not just today, but in the next several months as we dissect the book of Nehemiah. We're, we're going to be very thematic in our study and preaching through the book of Nehemiah, looking at what God's word has to say to us. Now, anytime we look in the context, look at the text, then we've got to read it in context. We start by reading it where it was wrote. We read it, who wrote it? We look at the historicity behind the book. Because see, we are so narcissistic today that we think the Bible just exists for us today. It existed for the church a thousand years ago. It existed 
In this form, Nehemiah, one of the last books written in the Old Testament. You realize that? This is, there, you can look at the Old Testament in three ways. Uh, historically on a timeline. Pre, you've got the beginning of history. You have the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. You know that gives us Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We see the story of creation. We see Noah and the ark. We see the Tower of Babel. We see the generations begin. We see Abraham, the chosen son, the promised son Isaac. We see God raise up a nation from a man by the name of Jacob, a heel grabber, to be the father of the tribes. We see them uh, taken care of in Egypt. We see them go through the wilderness. God protect them. And then we see them cross into the promised land. We see the full breakdown of the law, not just Ten Commandments, but all the dietary laws and the ceremonial laws. We see the, the temple laws. We see all of that. We begin to see through the, the books of history. We see the kings. We see the judges first. And we see Israel's rebellion and how they wanted to be like the world. And so sometimes our prayers are answered that we wish we had never prayed. And God granted their request but sent leanness unto their soul. And they start with a man by the name of Saul who was head and shoulders above all of them. And I believe not just in stature, but in arrogance. And he took his eyes off of God and he lied. And God's man said, obedience is better than sacrifice. We see him anoint a little shepherd boy by the name of David who goes and kills a great giant in the valley of Elah. We see him love the Lord, a man after God's own heart, yet fall in sin. And yet in Psalm 51, we see great repentance when he cries against the only father have I sinned. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And then we go into the patriarchal years and we see all the kings and we see Solomon, that great king that was above everything, richer than any man, wiser than any man. And yet he took his eyes off the Lord. And then we see the division of kingdoms, north and south, Israel and Judah, two and ten. We see a breaking down. And so you have a pre-exilic time before they go into exile. You, and when you look at the prophets, then you have an exilic time where the prophets are in exile. And then you have a post-exilic period where the prophets are looking back as they have come out of exile. Nehemiah is right at the tail end of exilic and the beginning of post-exilic. You say, why does all that matter? If it happened and it's recorded in God's word, bless God, it matters. Do you know that there is a thousand year difference between the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and Nehemiah? A thousand years. A millennium, if you will. A lot of things had happened. Uh, kingdoms had risen and fallen in those thousand years. We had seen kings. We had seen princes. We had seen all kinds of great and mighty things. But now we come to a very dark time. You see, Nehemiah, as we look at this book, just some background. and We'll be able to fly through after this, but we need some background to understand what he's writing about. 
Because as we begin and we look, listen to me, our series is going to be on burden to build. The word burden is my word. It is my word. I, I heard it in a message back in November. God clearly spoke to my heart as Robbie Zacharias preached about it. Burden. And God tied it to this book in Nehemiah where it's mentioned several times. The word burden literally means a load and most often a very heavy load. And if you don't know anything about burden, then you're not alive. You're not breathing. We all carry burdens. We carry burdens for our children. Today we're carrying burdens financially, emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually. We all have our burdens. There are things that break our heart. There's loads. And I'm going to tell you something. A biblical burden is not only all right, it's expected. It is when it becomes worry that it's not God's plan. God said, do not be anxious or careful for anything, but in everything through what? Remember that. Nehemiah was a man of deep religious conviction. He was unafraid of hard work, much like the men that helped move all this stuff out yesterday to prepare for night to shine this coming week. This week's going to be busy. It's going to be a lot of hard work. And listen, we need a lot of Nehemiahs when the last guest leaves here Friday night. Not the same four that's already, always here. We need a lot of Nehemiahs that's going to stick around for the hard work. When nobody's dancing, the music, we'll play some music if that'll make you happy. I'll go buy you a pack of Skittles if that's what it takes. But we need to be dedicated to hard work as Nehemiah. He was fearless in the face of danger and a great and zealous patriot. He was well respected by the king and trusted to be his cupbearer. You see, this cupbearer was one he had to be able to trust because he didn't just carry the cup. He tasted the cup to make sure it was all right for the king because that was one of the most famous and infamous, if you will, and easy ways to take out your opponent was to slip some poison in the cup. Much easier. Listen, they didn't have sniper rifles back then. And so it came through the cup. Nehemiah was trusted by the king. He was a man of wisdom and integrity, marked by generosity and unselfishness. Focused energy and a passion for God and his people. John Phillips does so well describing him in this way. You see, Nehemiah had lived his entire life in exile. His entire life. He wasn't raised in Jerusalem. He had not spent time walking through the Kidron Valley and going over to play with his friends in Bethany and down the road to Bethlehem. He'd been raised in a place called Babylon. He was willing to give up his relative life of comfort in the palace with the king because of his people's burden. A place he had not even really seen. A burden to rebuild. He had gotten word back from his own brother. He said the place is in a wreck. The walls are torn down. The temples are burnt. When Babylon came in there, they destroyed 
the city of God. You see, Israel had been decimated by the Babylonians, which had just been defeated by the Persians. You think this whole Iran-Iraq thing just started in the last 50 years? Listen, Iran whipped Iraq in Nehemiah's day. And Nehemiah ends up in a home of the king that is probably known best as Artaxerxes I. The king he served was possibly the son-in-law. Now get this. Artaxerxes I was possibly and most likely the son-in-law of none other than a little girl named Esther. God was already working in his sovereignty in the days of Esther and the days of Mordecai to protect and prepare Nehemiah for such a time as this. What have you been through in your life that you thought this makes no sense? I pray in the next couple months, God begins to peel off some layers and drop some scales from your eyes and from my eyes and from Esai's eyes and that God's word and God's man, whether it's a man or a woman, we all have a Mordecai that steps up and says, listen, God has a plan for you. I want to be your Mordecai today and tomorrow and tell you God has a plan for you for this place, for this time, for such a time as this. This whole book opens and closes in prayer. What does that ought to say to us? The first six chapters deals with the reconstruction of the walls with the final seven chapters revealing the reinstruction of the people. Zerubbabel had come in and he had worked on their, their religious character. Then we see Ezra come in and work on their moral character. And now Nehemiah is coming and reestablishing much of their political as well as spiritual character. Alan Redpath wrote, there's a wall to be built around the city of your soul. Now, I've been rushing, but I want, to, I want to pause and take a deep breath right here. You're looking at Nehemiah's wall. Two and a half weeks ago, I took that picture. And we're walking around the city of David, just outside the current walls of Jerusalem. And there's a group of 30 preachers, and we're walking, we have a a guide, and we have these things on they call whispers. And so you have this little, we, we joked about it being our pace, pacemakers. And so we had to hang that thing around our neck every day. And if you see any pictures, I've usually got blue beats. Well, I wasn't listening to Blackberry Smoke or Leonard Skinner. I was listening to my guide because I, I don't like him one ear piece things. And I could put that on and really focus on what he was saying. And as we're walking around, You've got to understand, in David's day, David built a house, but he didn't build the temple. Is that right? Wanted to build the temple. God says, not for yours to build. You're a bloody man. You, couldn't, you can't do it. You've been a man of war. But it'll be your son. Am I right? Y'all read your Bible? Okay, so David couldn't, but he provided his son everything he needed to get it done. But he built a palace. David had a great palace. Well, in the old days, the walls have moved over generation, generation, generation. The wall you're looking at right there on the left. Watch this. 
Right there. See the edge right there? That to the right is Roman period. It's all destroyed. But Nehemiah's wall, that wall was built 2,800 years ago. We think if we find something from the Civil War, we found something ancient. Israeli said, everything y'all got, you just babies. Your country's a baby. This is the cradle of society. And so we're walking around. The city of David is called that not because of Bethlehem. We know that from the Bible. It's kind of like saying you're from Evans County but, or, or saying you're from Claxton, but you live in Hagen. It's like saying you, you're from Atlanta because nobody knows where Powder Springs is. You really are, but you really aren't. So Bethlehem's the city of David, but this area is the city of David because it was where David had built his palace. Now this may be a little stretch, but I got to say it because I find it so intriguing. So if this is the city of David, and the guy, he said, oh, we're going around to the city of David, and we're going to Hezekiah's tunnel, and this is where David's palace. Oh, and, and, and that, was, that was the wall Nehemiah built. We said, whoa, 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 time out. He just stopped and looked, you know, and we're all hearing it. He's just talking like this. Oh, in the city of David, and that's Nehemiah's wall. We, we're like, hold on. You ought to lead with that. This is Nehemiah's, this is the wall that the people built in 52 days. That's the actual wall. It's not a re, because a lot of it's reconstructed. He said, no, 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 that's, that's all, that part is an original corner that was built around the, the south end of the city of David that was right outside of David's palace. Now here's the stretch. I may be super spiritualizing it. May not have any implication to you at all. I believe God ordained Mordecai. I believe God ordained Esther. I believe things are followed. And, and you say, why are genealogies important? Well, we'll get to in this chapter, in this book, where the people gather with their families, elbow to elbow, and the Todds work on this section, and the Bradys work on this section, and the Stricklands work on this section, and the Clarks work on this section, and the Smiths section, and, and families go, well, would it not? Listen, I asked someone this question today, uh, uh, other day. If Evans County was completely wiped out this week and we all had to leave, we all had to leave, let's just say for 20 years. For 20 years, you had to leave. It was uninhabitable. Well, for whatever reason, they put, a, put up gates and said, you can't go back. Well, in about 18 years, we hear word they're going to start letting people back. They're going to start letting people back. And so when they start letting people back, and then the walls come down, the fences come down, and they say, you can all come back, and we're going to build back our county. I want to ask you to build, be real honest. Where would you go build? Where you come from. I mean, some of you'd build in Daisy. One I asked the other day, I'd build back in Daisy. You'd build back where the Todds have been. I mean, we would build in those places. I'd get my preference because I'm still not satisfied. So I just picked me the best place that wasn't took just yet. You snooze, you lose. But here's the deal. I don't have a problem 
believing God, David's descendants built that exact corner right there around the city of David. Because God was, and you know what that tells me? If that's possible, then the ancestors of Jesus laid every one of those stones. His family tree. Because they had a burden to build. We're the family of God. And it is our job, it is our duty to be about building for the Lord. Now I want you to understand something. We may get to a part where we're talking about worship center. I'm going to go on and, and, and go ahead and run the elephant up and down the aisles that's in the room. We're probably going to talk about that along the way and begin to cast a vision for the future. But I'm telling you, it's not about buildings. Once again, Redpath said, there is a wall to be built around the city of your soul. There's a wall to be built, a testimony to be erected around your church. There is a wall of witness and testimony to be built around the whole kingdom of God in all the world. Friday night, what will we tell the world about our church? What will our testimony be? The wall of our life means, hey, we care about all people. People with special needs. We will tell men at a wild game banquet. Michael, save you rabbits. I saw the picture. We're going to tell men Jesus loves you. What are we going to tell kids that come in ragtag? You say, they've already been there. We're the Bible school. Blah, blah. What are we going to tell kids when they walk in the doors? For vacation Bible school. What are we going to tell the kids in the early school and the late school in Solala, Guatemala? What are we going to tell the church, La Veridad, in Solala? What are we going to tell the kids in CLC and other places about our testimony with the Lord? You will discover there is no winning without warfare. There is no opportunity without opposition and there is no victory without vigilance. Whenever God's people say, let us arise and build, Satan says, let us arise and oppose. So, as we contemplate our future, where do we start? Where do we start? It's a big, I, sometimes I get so overwhelmed with all the things I need to do, I end up doing nothing. You ever felt like that? Well, we're not going to be like that. Where do we start? What will we do? What can we do? May we say with all God's people, let us rise up and build. Nehemiah 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And it came to pass in the month Chislu in the 20th year as I was in Shushan the palace that Hananiah, one of my brethren, his brother, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. You ever ask anybody, say, how's your family doing? Well, they're not doing very good. Man, they're having a rough time of it. Nehemiah heard that about his whole country. 
The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass, when I heard these words, that I sat down and cried. I sat down and wept, and I mourned for certain days, and I fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And I said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keeps covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night, for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both me and my father's house have sinned. He didn't say, they've sinned, God. You know, if they'd have been here, they'd have got told. No, he said, we, us, them and me, have sinned. He said, we have dealt very corruptly against you. We have not kept your commandments, your statutes, your judgments, which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If you transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But, he didn't just put the positive side. He revealed the depth of his repentance of acknowledging what God had said if they did rebel. But if you turn again unto me and keep my commandments and do them. I don't know where you're at in life. I don't know what your excuse is today, why you won't be faithful, why you won't serve, why you won't be where God is. But I can just about guess, somewhere in your past is some kind of big something that Satan has propped up in your mind and your heart and convinced you that you're worthless to God. I'm here to tell you, after thousands of years, God still cared about his children. God still cares about you. It's time to get over yourself. Stop with the guilt and give it to Jesus. I'm not saying ignore it. He didn't ignore it. But confess it and move on. He said, if you'll turn and keep my commandments and do them. Though there were of you cast out into the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them into the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are your servants and your people whom thou hast redeemed by the great power and by your strong hand. Listen to verse 11. O Lord, I beseech thee, I'm begging you, let now your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and prosper. I pray you, your servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the cup, king's cupbearer. Can I tell you from this time until he actually gets to chapter 2, it was four months. From the start of chapter 1, when he begins to really pray until he goes in front of the king, was four months of nothing but in-depth, focused, serious, fasting and praying. And he asked God to help him because he didn't know what the king would say. He had no idea. You know, we try to read people, try to figure out. We say, well, we've got to find the best time. I'm telling you the best time to do stuff when God said do it. Yep. And so a burden 
today to pray. He said, rise up and build. Chapter 2, verse 18. That will be our theme throughout the entire time. Rise up and build. Building blocks for God's people to do God's work, God's way, in God's time. Building blocks. So some of you thought I was bringing you a present. Today I did. Some of you asked, said, did you bring me a present? I did bring you a present. So we're going to have the presence of building blocks. And as we go through this series, I pray that we end up with a wall. I know they're not real blocks. Come on, imagine with me. So we got walls. And what blocks do we lay first when we lay a wall? The foundation. So what is the foundation? What is the foundation building blocks? A building. God's word. You see in chapter 4 verse 6, it said, For the people had a mind to work. People had a mind to work. That's why you end up with 500 something on a Sunday night to prepare. But listen. What if it's not a night to shine? It's not near as glamorous. I love the fact that we're reaching people with special needs. But what about just people? Because I'm here to tell you, if you miss everything else I tell you, hear me what I'm about to tell you. There's never been a person born that didn't have a special need. And that need is Jesus. That's it. Bottom line, that's the gospel. The greatest need in this world is Jesus Christ. You want to change the Middle East? Jesus. You want to change abortion? Give them Jesus. You want to change politics in Washington? Let people start getting saved. Revival break out on college campuses and in high schools and in churches. My friends, if we want to change the world, we must give them Jesus. So here's the three things we want to look at today in chapter 1. Who are we praying to as a burden to pray? That's the message today. A burden to pray. Who are we praying to? How are we praying? And what are we praying for? That's the, that's the building blocks. Who are we praying to? How are we praying? And what are we praying for? Uh, man, I love this quote by A.W. Tozer. Anything God has done, he can do now. Anything God has ever done anywhere, he can do here. Have I, have I lost you yet? Y'all still with me on that? Anything God has done, he can do now. He's still God, right? Anything God has ever done anywhere, he can do here. And anything God has ever done for anyone, he can do for you. So how do we put it in action? Well, it starts with a burden to pray. Nehemiah, it says in verse 4 of chapter 1, that he fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Listen, Jesus said, pray like this, our Father which art in heaven. Who are we praying to? Jesus said, our Father, which art in heaven. 
So who are we praying to? Number one, the Lord God of heaven. That's what he said in verse 5. I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven. Why is that important? Because listen, what he's saying is it's used many times in Nehemiah and it's used in Daniel and a few other places. The God of heaven, the Lord God of heaven. He is showing us, number one, he's Lord, he's master over all things, and he's God, but we they were living in a day and age of all the idols, the idols of Persia, the idols of Babylon. You remember the idol that Nebuchadnezzar had built? We went to Caesarea Philippi, and it's also known as the gates of hell because of where it's at and all the idol worship that took place in that place years and years and years and years ago. Listen, when he says the God of heaven, it is by definition telling us that the idols are of the earth. God transcends, idols do not. Idols fall over and break their arms and their head and their legs off. Jesus has never fallen over. God is above all things. He is the Lord God of heaven. The very essence of deity. He is deity and no one else. But it says not only is he the Lord God of heaven, he is the great and terrible God. And that word terrible can also be used as, as awesome. He's great and awesome. Well, being great shows us his goodness. Is God good to you? Is God good to America? Doesn't sound very convincing. So we got a lot of problems. Well, yeah, we do have a lot of problems. But for those of you who've never traveled outside the country, I'm going to tell you something. We don't have near the problems in near as bad as you think they are. What we've got is a sin problem. That's what we've got. He is the great and terrible God. He had been great to them even when they had rebelled. God had sent them into exile he never forgot them. Never forgot them. I don't know what backside of the desert you're on, but I'm telling you something. Michelle uses this all the time. God's got a burning bush for you somewhere. You just got to look for it. Moses figured all of his life was basically over. He'd live with his father-in-law until he died and he'd take over the farm and all that. I'm going to tell you something. God had a different plan. One day Moses is out just minding his own business. He looks over and he said, what's that? And God just kind of nudged his spirit and said, well, go over and look. And the closer he got, the more he saw. And there was a burning bush that was not consumed. And God spoke to him out of that. And thus began one of the greatest relationships in world history. Moses and the burning bush. He is a great God, isn't he? Even in the midst of heartaches and sorrows, he is a great and awesome God. It, this terrible or awesome means he's a God to be feared or revered. Not feared is like this, but feared in reverence, humble. I'm going to tell you, we're missing a level of reverence in the world today. Where we just throw God's name around like it's nothing. Our worship, uh, other things. And, and I have no, I'm not talking about dress code. I'm not talking about music. I'm talking about attitude. When we come into God's house, is our attitude that you're an awesome, terrible, holy God. And I fall 
fall on my face before you. Because listen, even Nehemiah said, you're holy in the fact that you told us if we rebelled, you'd judge us. You told us that. Not only of holy judgment, but he's worthy of all our praise, isn't he? Amen. Yeah. Worthy of all our praise. Though he slay me, yet will I praise him. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God, you have blessed me beyond measure. The one leper who come back and said, where's the other night? I don't know, but I'm here to tell you thanks. I don't know how he did it, but I'm going to tell you something. He did it. He healed me. He raised me. He caused me to see. I couldn't walk and now I can run. It's all about him. Him alone. Some of us won't come to Sunday school because of preferences. We won't serve because of our own Pro programs and our own process and we say well it don't do it this way and we won't sing in the choir and we won't teach and we won't do all these other things we'll just come and we'll leave I'm here to tell you get over yourself get over yourself and put you in a position where you see God for who he is and who you are and you're not God when we serve understanding he's a great and awesome God worthy of all praise Man, I'm going to tell you something. That flesh will be crucified like Paul said daily, and we'll get focused on him. He said he is a God of covenant and mercy. Covenant means faithful to his word. He had made a covenant with his people. In the third chapter of Genesis, God declared there would be a Savior. Through Rahab, Through Boaz, through David, through some pretty ragtag folks. Through a time of Herod trying to kill all the babies so he would just, by the process of elimination, get rid of any threat. And against all nature, against the laws of physics, nature, Gravity, whatever you, every law, he didn't break it. He was the creator of it, and the creator of it is above it. And so God became man, born of a virgin. That's a great and awesome God. A God of covenant to fulfill what he said. I'll put enmity between her seed and your seed. And in Romans 16, 20 says, and soon he's going to fulfill the rest of that promise where he crushes Satan's head under our feet shortly. He is the God of covenant. They were in exile because they had broke the covenant. You see, everything, we think God is, uh, in, that we're entitled somehow. We can shake our fist and say, God, you promise. I'm going to tell you something. Most promises in the Bible are conditional, not unconditional. For believers, listen, when you have children or you're a child, you understand if you do what you're supposed to do, there are certain privileges. But if you don't clean your room, you don't take out the trash, you don't do other things, then there's a limit to your privilege. 
And if your child doesn't understand that, you better start with them now before you lose them. Because if they're calling you by your first name and yeah and huh and they do what they want and you just give them what they want just to keep them quiet, you've not done them any favors. If you really love them, let them know it. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Show them how much you love them. I'm not talking about beating your kids. I'm talking about chastising them as the Lord does you. Because it would, the bosses don't care. Listen, we'll whine and complain about some teacher mistreated them. Truth is, they were just lazy and didn't do their work. Are they bad teachers? Yeah, they're bad teachers. But are all of them bad? No. Are all police bad because there's a few? No. Are all preachers all about money? No. Don't stereotype teachers. Don't stereotype police. But what's going to happen is they ain't going to be able to hold a job. They're not going to be able to stay married because mama had always given them what they wanted. And if they get mad at the boss, they just walk off. Well, I got news for you. Who do you think is going to keep them up? You are. And you deserve it. If you don't do it. Listen, God says, I'm not going to keep you up if you don't do the way you're supposed to. But then he's a God of mercy, full of grace. Full of grace. When the prodigal son come back, he said, I don't deserve to be a son. I'll just be a servant. God said, uh, the, did the father say, you're right. You sorry, low life piece of trash. Now get out there and I'll call you when my, when my, your brother or used to be your brother. When he's done eating, then I'll call you. Is that what he did? He said, you will always be my son. There may be somebody here needs to hear what I'm about to tell you. For whatever reason, there's something in your life. You know you were saved when you were young, but you're questioning it because of some actions you have partaken in in your life. Either one or two things. Either you were never saved and you are just living like the flesh, but you really ain't going to feel bad about it if you was lost. If you're saved in that 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 convicting power of the Spirit's overwhelming you, listen, don't chalk that up to being lost again. Chalk that up to belonging to God. And understand, God, as your Heavenly Father, if you've been born again, will never cease being your Father. Amen. He will never stop loving you. There's nowhere. We, we heard this in experiencing God. There's nowhere you can go and nothing you can do that will stop Him from loving you. Now, he won't be pleased with you. He's not going to say, okay, we get, we get relationship and, and uh, our standing and our state mixed up. And we think if we're mad or upset about a situation, then we don't love them. Listen, God was upset with Israel, but he didn't stop loving them. I've been upset with my children before, but I didn't stop loving them. Right? And God does it better than any of us because he's full of mercy. Now listen, a burden to pray is not just who we're praying to, but how are we praying? Number one, he tells us that he did so with a broken heart. Oh Lord, God of heaven, let your ear be attentive. Let your eyes be open. It said that he sat down and wept and mourned certain days. He fasted and prayed. He was truly broken. What does it mean to have a broken heart? It literally in this context, 
when he spoke of being broken as he prayed, means to be destroyed. His emotions were just wrung out as he thought about the walls being torn down around God's glorious city, Jerusalem. And all God had done, he was broken. He had a broken heart. When are we going to start being broken hearted for the things that breaks God's? That ought to be our prayer every day. God, break my heart for the things that breaks yours. Billy Graham said that years and years and years ago. What breaks God's heart? Everything. If you sin, you break God's heart. Lost people break God's heart. Jesus hanging on the cross broke God's heart. But he loved us. That's why he sent him. That's the mercy. That's the love. But we break God's heart. God hates to see children abused. God hates divorce. God hates these things. It breaks his heart. What breaks ours? Do we care about families? Do we care about children? Do we care about our our students and our senior adults and our men and our women? Are we willing to do what it takes to invest in their lives to be everything God wants them to be? If we're going to be Eastside going into the future, then we must be broken, destroyed in our emotions for the things that destroys God's. He said that we must do so with a contrite spirit. He speaks of this in Psalm and in the Psalms, I believe, 3418 and Isaiah. He said that if we're going to worship him, we must do so with a broken and contrite heart and spirit. This word contrite spirit literally means to be bruised or to crumble. Our very life and our very breath is just bruised by the things of this world. Nehemiah was broken. He was contrite. We must... We must allow, because you know the Bible says the healing is in the color of that wound. In that bruise, it's showing a healing. We must show the world our heart, that we care about it. We have so thought that if we would build up our, our, our toughness, the world doesn't need to see that. The world needs to see our bruised hearts. And spirit for them. And then with a humbled mind. I don't know about you, but there's a lot of days I'm a legend in my own mind. I'm convinced I'm a pretty big deal. You know, I, I, I smell of rich mahogany and have many leather-bound books. I, I really think, man, I'm the bomb.com today. Check my, my whole list. And then Becky gets home. <laughs> and it's like, open wide for your big tea, tablespoon of humility. Why didn't you take the trash this morning? Why did I have to take trash? Went out there this morning, it's freezing, trash is still sitting there. Why didn't you take trash? Why is this and this? Why, you know? Or my children will call me and they don't call me, oh, great and mighty pastor and preacher and father of all the world. Matter of fact, I'll call him about something and she'll say, my dude. I said, my dude? My name's Daddy. 
She said, well, that's it, my due. And I'd call Ethan, hey, what are you doing? Huh? What are you going to do? I don't know. You know? And that's 20 minutes. I just gave you the whole rundown of 20 minutes. Yeah, they have a way of humbling us, don't they? Listen, a humbled mind. But then he goes on and he says, I wept. When's the last time you, you literally wept over your brokenness for somebody? You know, right now through Southern Baptist Convention, they're pushing an evangelism strategy called, Who is Your One? Well, let me ask you, who is it that you care enough about that you know does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, or they're out of the will of God, who is your one enough that you would weep over them? That you would fall on your face and in great brokenness pray? Because you see, he not only was broken and contrite and humbled, but he said he fasted. When you fast, you bring all three of these together in conjunction with a hunger for God. Nothing else can satisfy your appetite. Nothing. You know, we, we go through life and we say, what are we going to have for supper? I don't know. What do you want? I don't know. Until somebody says, well, let's have this. No, I don't want that. <laughs> Y'all know. Listen, I'm just bracing you for 15 minutes. You're going to have this conversation. What are we going to have for lunch? I don't know. What do you want? Let's go to Mexico. I don't want that. Well, let's go to McDonald's. No. Well, let's go home. No, let's just go get something to eat. What do you want? I don't know. <laughs> That's us, isn't it? That is us. But when we set all that aside and we say, there is nothing can fulfill me but Jesus. I'm not going to eat lunch, not to lose weight, but to lose self. I'm not going to eat supper. I'm going to drink water. I'm going to get my focus. Everywhere the word fast is used in the entire scripture is always, always, always for deliverance. It's not for money. It's not for uh, all the, 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 the desires. It's, but it is for family. It is for self. Listen, Nehemiah prayed for the reestablishment of the walls and the temple and the, you know, the foundation had already been laid, but it wasn't rebuilt until later. Esther prayed for deliverance of her people from death. Haman was going to kill them all. What about Daniel? What about Samuel? What about Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael? They were going into the fire. I'm telling you something. We all go into the fire every day. We ought to be fasting and praying. And when we bring it all together, we must ask ourselves, how hungry are we for the presence and power of God? How bad do we want it? How bad do we want it? Are we willing to skip a meal for it? Are we willing to set aside a season of fasting that God would reestablish our home, reestablish our marriage, help us in our business, Help us financially in the, in the right way of being what God wants us to be? Yeah, are, we, are we facing emotional crises? Are we willing to set aside a time to fast and pray? And then 
What are we praying for? I want to be real quick with these. What are we praying for? He said in verse 11, O Lord, I beseech thee, let now your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of all your servants who desire to fear your name and prosper. I pray thee, thy servant this day, grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Number one, we ought to be praying for a relationship through worship. A relationship through worship. So our first block, terrible handwriting. First building block, before we ever move further, it's got to be worship. Whatever we do, we ought to worship Him. We've said He's good. We said He's great. We said He's awesome. We say He's Father. We said He's Lord God of heaven. He is the only one that deserves worship. Not all the back patters on the Grammys and the Oscars and whoever wins tonight. Great. Love it. I love sports. But you know what? No one playing that game will save somebody's soul. They all need Jesus just like we do. First building blocks worship. Now there's eight elements to worship. I'm not going to call them all, but some... Prayer, preaching, confession, repentance, tithing, all these things. And, and what I'm going to do, during the invitation, after church, all over this box, I challenge you to come and pray a prayer of worship, just praising Him for who He is, as well as what He does. And I want you to just write a word on this block of what, we as a church need to pray for in the matter of worship. That what you need, Lord, I need to tithe in worship. I've not been tithing. I've been ripping you off. I've been stealing from you. Lord, I need to be more open in teaching and, and serving. I need to be singing, Lord. Lord, I've been back here hiding on one of these chairs I need to be at choir practice and I need to be at church. I've used every excuse. I need to be saying, I want you to write your heart in the form of worship as a prayer before God. But then, restoration through repentance. What did he say? He said, we have sinned, God. We have turned our back on you. We pray now that you will redeem us and forgive us. And so, I'm going to pick the lowest one. Because listen, if we're going to get anywhere, if we're going to see God do a work in our church and in our life, you may be mad at somebody sitting across the aisle today. You sit on one side because they sit on the other. There may be something from 15 years ago, 25 years ago. It may be something with you and your spouse. It may be something you've held against your mother or your dad. Whatever it is, right here. You don't have to be specific. But you need to write a prayer of repentance on here. These are going to be the building blocks. We're going to build the wall. God wants Reside this year. Repentance of arrogance. Self-centeredness. Whatever it is. Because listen, it's got to be 
restoration through. You can't be where God wants you to be if there is unrepentant sin in your life. And then finally, he, look, look at this. Because we don't believe in a prosperity gospel, but we do believe God wants to prosper us. Plans for good, right? So Nehemiah literally prayed. He said, Lord, that you would prosper us, I pray you. That you would prosper our work, make our work prosper. That we would see people saved. That we would see great work come from night to shine and wild game and women's ministry. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would prosper us through dependence. So, what is your prayer of dependence today? What is it that God, you pray that God would prosper you in, in in your Sunday school class? How about you student ministry? Praying that God would work in, in your leaders' lives and work through your life to grow our student ministry? Deacons, what is it that you need to pray God prosper our deacon ministry? That we would reach more people. And I don't care how long you've been a member or even if you're not a member. Maybe you need to come and you need to pray all these that God would make you what you need to be. And finally, after whatever period, step forward and say, this is where God wants me today, right now, serving Him. And Lord, I commit totally unto you as they come to the instruments. Three blocks, building blocks of prayer. Worship, repentance, and dependence. Worship, repentance, and dependence. Do you have a burden to pray? Are you willing to rise up and build? Do you have a mind to work? Come and trust the Lord today. Come and trust Him. I'm going to scatter these around. You can come right now. You can come later. I don't care. But if you need to come pray, you need to come right now. And here's the deal. If you're lost without God, none of this means anything until you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ died to set you free. You don't understand worship because you don't have anything to worship. All you're doing is worshiping self until you die to self, ask the Father to forgive you of all your sins, come into your life and save you. And be able to say as Hartley did, I know I'm going to heaven because Jesus died for me. Stop putting it off. And if you're out of the will of God, Listen, Israel suffered for years and years, decades because of their rebellion. It's time to stop. Are you holding Eastside back? Are you holding your family back? What are, you, what are you holding back because you won't let go and let God? Right now, listen, when you stand, I want you to come to the voice of God. See His great and awesomeness, His love and mercy. His forgiveness that only He can grant. And come, church, let us be a church that's burdened to pray. Stand and come. Come to Jesus. I'll pray with you. Come. Come now.